If you have your Bibles open there to Jude, then stand. We'll read uh, from verse 1. Amen. Verse 1 through to verse 10. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I give all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, under the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication, and going after strange flesh, are set forth an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. But these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beasts, in those things they corrupt themselves. Lord, we just pray, help us tonight, Lord, as we come to your word, that you would open your word to our hearts and you would speak to us tonight, Lord. We thank you for the power of your word. And Lord, we pray tonight for the anointing of the Holy Ghost to be upon thy word, O God. Lord, we thank you for the privilege we have to meet in this manner, to open the word of God, to share it, Lord, to, Lord, to gather, to gather in the name of Jesus, Lord. And we just pray that, O God, that you would minister to our hearts tonight, Lord. Meet every need in this place. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may take your seats. Praise the Lord. This is the fourth part of this uh, series on this little epistle of Jude tonight. The subtitle is Filthy Dreamers. Filthy Dreamers. If you pick up the reading just again in verse 8 there in the Scriptures, verse 8 through to verse 10, where we'll uh, look into tonight, speaking of these men that have crept in unawares to bring in uh, damnable heresies and false teaching in the church, Jude says, likewise, these also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. But these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beasts in those things, they corrupt themselves. Filthy dreamers. These men that will come into the church and they will bring a teaching, distorting one of the great doctrines of the Christian faith. That is the doctrine of the grace of God. The amazing grace of God, which we 
greatly appreciate God's grace in our lives. Uh, and we know that it's only by the grace of God that any of us are here tonight, any of us are saved by the grace of God alone. And it's important that we do appreciate and understand the grace of God. If you turn over to Ephesians chapter 2, I just want us to uh, just recap again on this amazing doctrine, the grace of God, and understand it's, it, is, it, is, it is truly an amazing an amazing thing and a wonder, this wonderful grace of God, God's riches at Christ's expense. And Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4 says this, But God, who is rich in mercy, the richness of God's mercy, for His great love wherewith He has loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, has quickened us together with Christ, then it says there, by grace, by grace are you saved. That is an amazing revelation by the grace of God that any one of us in this room are saved. It's nothing of ourselves, nothing of our merits, nothing of anything good that we have done. We're all wretched sinners needing salvation and God's great grace reached down into the horrible pit that we were in and because of His grace, He has saved us. By grace are ye saved. It's so important that we understand this. We can, never, we can never merit it. There's nothing we can do. There's no works that we can achieve. There's no standard that we can live up to. All our own righteousness are as filthy rags. But in the, in the mercy and the grace of God, God in His great grace reached away deep down into the very depths of our horrible pit, and praise the Lord, He lifted us. That's the grace of God. Not one of us deserve it, but God's great mercy on our lives and His great grace. And then it says there in verse 6 that He's raised us up together, made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. He's been so kind to each of us demonstrating this exceeding great grace, the riches of the grace. And then again, verse 8, it says, For by grace ye are saved through faith, and that it is not of yourselves. Here is the gift of God. We cannot give Him anything for this great gift. There is nothing we can do. There is nothing in us. There's nothing good in us. But in the mercy of God, and when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, this wonderful gift of salvation is granted to us, and it's, it is the grace of God. We always must remember there's nothing of us, nothing of our merits, nothing of our righteousness, nothing of our church activity, nothing of our good background or good living. As people say, it's good living. There's not one of us are good living. It's the mercy of God. It's the grace of God that we're saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. There's nothing we can do. It is the gift of God. And then it says in verse 9, it's not of works, lest any man can boast. There is nothing. That we must really, really stress this great grace. It is nothing of ourselves. Actually, in Galatians and, and, and chapter 2, when Paul's writing to the church there, we know in that, in that epistle when he's writing to them that there was so much of what was coming in to, to bring the church back into a system of works. 
For example, circumcision. So they wanted to go back and they wanted to start going under the law and the works and try to achieve salvation. And so that's where those great verses come, that we're to stand fast in the liberty where Christ has made us free and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And so is, Paul was either writing to the church to expose uh, legalism in one hand, or he was also writing to the church to expose uh, liberalism on the other hand. They were either going liberal uh, with the grace of God or they were going back in uh, to the work salvation. And he says in Galatians 2.21, this is, this is what Paul writes to them. He says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. I, I will not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. If we can achieve it, and we hear it often even uh, when you would share the gospel with those from the Roman Catholic tradition, you know it's a very difficult thing for them to break out of this mindset that's been put into them from a very young age, that it is by your good works, it is by your giving, it is by your praying, it is by your lighting your candles and crawling over mountains and doing all those great things that maybe one day you might enter in through those pearly gates. Thank God we're free from all of that. It is not works. And we, and we know we need to pray for that mindset to be broken. And our Roman Catholic friends who are not saved all around us, because they are still believing that there's something good or something that they must do in order to earn salvation. And Paul says here, we can't frustrate the grace of God. Because if we try to go back and make it out of works or through law, then the whole essence of the death of Christ, Christ actually died in vain. There was no purpose for him to die. And that's always something that we share with Roman Catholics. If you can make it by your good works, why then did he die? What was the purpose of his death? His death then was in vain. And so Paul's writing that we do not in any way endorse works or works salvation, any merit of ourselves, any good in us. We know that, as the hymn writer says, it is amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We're all wretch, wretched sinners in, needing, in need of his great uh, grace. Peter writes about for us that we need to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We know tonight in prayer, as we came to prayer, even Stephen led us in prayer, we came boldly to a throne of grace, God's great throne of grace, and that is where we obtain mercy, and we find grace in time of need. Thank God it's a throne of grace tonight that we come to through the blood of the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on, there's so many areas and verses that he exhorts us and brings the great truth of this grace. He calls it in 2 Corinthians 9 and 14, the exceeding grace of God that is in you, the exceeding grace. He writes again in Corinthians, in Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians 4, about the abundant grace of God. God's great grace, exceeding grace, the abundant grace. It is an amazing thing to know about the grace of God, that God has saved us through faith because of his great mercy, and there's nothing, there is nothing, and there never will be anything that we can do to experience this grace. And such a precious doctrine then 
the grace of God, when it is distorted, when men will come in, as Judas telling us, and this has been from the time of the beginning of the church right through the centuries, that there would be men come in, if you remember, we talked about those stealth men would creep into the church and distort or change the grace of God. And they would take away or they would separate that when we're saved by God's grace, we also are justified. We're justified as if though we have never sinned before a holy God, that He imputes the righteousness of Christ upon us, that we stand individually but collectively with that righteousness of Christ upon us. Our old filthy rags have been taken off. Our sins, which are many, have been all washed away. As far as the east is from the west, so far He's removed all our sins. There is no record There is no record of our sins and and glory. Thank God tonight we're saved. We're washed in the blood of Jesus Christ and we stand justified. And then as we live this life, there is another work, another great doctrine. There's that doctrine of justification before the Lord and having peace with God. Then there's another doctrine that's worked out every day in our lives. That is the doctrine of sanctification. So we begin to live a life. We begin to walk. We begin to live for God. We live a different life to the way we once lived because God is in us. He's working through us. There's the conviction. There's the Holy Spirit. There's the leading. And so there is a relationship between being justified by faith and then a life that we're going to live for the Lord, sanctified, and a life that pleases the Lord, that we're saved. But now there's a fruit that comes from our life. The things that we used to do, We don't do them anymore, not because of law, but because of the grace of God in our lives that causes us to live a life that is separated. And then we looked last week, or a couple of weeks ago, we looked at examples. Then Jude begins to talk about these men that are going to come in, they'll distort the grace of God. And uh, they'll not only distort the grace of God, they'll deny even the lordship of Christ, that Christ is Lord. Uh, and he talks about then going through these examples in, in Jude uh, uh, chapter, uh, the first chapter there, the only chapter, but verse 5, sorry, it says he, he talks about those that came out of Egypt, that the Lord destroyed them that believed not. He starts to go back into examples in the Old Testament. He goes there in verse 6 about the angels that that kept not their first estate and left their habitation. Now he's reserved them in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. He's now speaking of this, these teachers, these false teachers that will creep into the church, that will bring a distortion to the grace of God. And he gives the examples of God's judgment upon these Old Testament individuals. And, he, and this is how serious God sees it. I, I know today that, today that there's so much goes on to the banner of the grace of God. And it's nearly like, well, everything can happen because we're under this banner. But I want to tell you, one of the things that's destroying the church today is not the devil. And I've said it before in this series. It is false doctrine and it is a false balance that's coming into the church. It is having a devastating effect, more than what I believe that most people are even willing to admit or even acknowledge. But the fruit of it the fruit of that is all being manifested right across the board in the church of Jesus Christ today. And it hasn't happened because of a demon or a devil. It's happened because of false teaching or a false balance in the teaching of Scriptures. 
And so then he says in verse 7, again referring to Sodom and Gomorrah, and he says there about those cities giving themselves over to fornication, going after strange flesh, flesh, or set forth an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So Paul is either confronting in his writings and the epistles, as we've already said, he's either confronting uh, legalism that's going to bring people back into works, or this is the other side of it, he's going to deal and confront liberalism, a distortion of the doctrine of grace. In Romans chapter 6, so this is nothing new, this goes right back when he's writing to the church at Rome. He writes to them and says, what shall we say then? Already these teachers had come and the distortion had come. And he says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? So already the distortion had begun to creep into the church. Well, because I'm free, because I'm under grace, because the Lord has saved me, because I'm free to do as I please, then I can in some way still continue on in sin. My behavior has no no relevance to the fact that I'm saved. I can live whatever way I want because, hey, I'm free. Well, we know we're free in Christ, but we also know there's a great responsibility upon us to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. And so Paul begins to deal with this. We've already read these verses, but I want to go through them again. Titus chapter 2, if you turn over, and then we'll go into 1 Peter chapter 1. But Titus uh, chapter 2, and here is bringing then the balance of this grace wherein we stand, and there is no merits of ourselves, but then there's a practical working out of grace in our lives. What way does that look? What way do we practice that? What way do we live that every day? And Titus 2 and verse 11 Uh, Paul writes and says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world. This is what the grace of God will teach us. This is about a lifestyle and how we live. This is not for our salvation, but because we are saved, then we're going to live a certain way. Our lives have been transformed. We've been changed by the power of God. And the grace of God then teaches us that we're to deny ungodliness, worldly lusts, live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're looking for that We're looking for that blessed hope, the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he can come at any time. You know, with Sue and Alex today, this afternoon, as I left the living room, Alex says, maybe not see you, hopefully not, because he could be here before Sunday. You may not have to preach. And that's that's the reality of the hope that we have. Uh, And there's a dear saint of God. He's just waiting for the Lord to come. He's just ready to go waiting on the Lord. But how we live is so important because we are read of this world. This world are watching us. How we live, you know, even the world know, they know uh, that some of the things that go on in the church today, the first thing the world will say, but I thought they were Christians because the world have an understanding of what really a believer is, what they what they are, how they live, how they talk, where they go, what they don't do, what they do, do do. But 
here we're told that it's denying ungodliness. This is God's grace. Worldly lusts. Live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Now what happens when there's a distortion of grace? We begin to see these things slip. They begin to go. The things that we held, the things that were true of us as growing up and understanding, even as we were kids and my parents brought us up in a way to understand what it is to live a life as a Christian. They demonstrated that in the life that they lived and then they would teach us that way. That when you're saved, this is how you're to live. This is how you're to walk as a Christian. But when the, the doctrine is distorted, those things that uh, determine the conduct of the church, how a church behaves, I'm talking about as individuals, but as believers, those things that we knew to be uh the old paths, the old ways, the, the, the ways that he's saved, he's changed, he's a different man, he's a, she's a different woman. Those old principles begin to crumble under the distortion of the doctrine of grace. And so people don't, then aren't encouraged or even taught that there is a way to live, that there's a responsibility. And the first thing that cries back when any man or any woman begins to teach that way, the first thing that comes back is, this is legalism, we're under grace. That's the first thing that responds. And yet here's what, here's what the Scripture tells us. We're to deny ungodliness. We're to deny worldly lusts. We're to live soberly, righteously, godly in the present world. So it's very clear what the grace of God should have an effect on us on how we're to live. In 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 13, if you turn over to it, 1 Peter 1 and verse 13, uh, Peter writes and says, Wherefore, 1 Peter 1, 13, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Then he says these words, As obedient children not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Holiness, a holy lifestyle, a holy life before the Lord. When the distortion of grace comes, these things are distorted. These, these responsibilities for a life are shook off. And then what is taught is that we're completely free to live as we please because it's not what we have done, it's what He's done. There's a distortion in the teaching. And so what happens is it has a profound effect. And I would ask you to make this judgment yourself. But it has a profound effect then on the conduct of the church in general. The things that the church or the convictions that it once had, that it once held, that it once believed, those convictions begin to go. And what we would never think would happen in the house of God or in the life of a believer, then all these things begin to happen. And believers begin to live in a very loose way. Their conduct changes. How has that happened? Is it because the church has been so wrong for so long and all of a sudden there's this new revelation of grace that somehow we have missed 
And all of a sudden, here is the new revelation of grace that these scriptures have no application to your life or to your walk, that we're just now in a new revelation to live as we please. I want to tell you what's happened. These filthy dreamers have crept in unawares and brought their teaching with them. The conduct changes, the conversation changes, the convictions change, and that has come through false teachers, false doctrine, and a false balance of this great doctrine. We looked at this when Jesus addressed the churches in Asia Minor. He didn't tell them about what the devil was doing, but he warned them and rebuked them for the doctrines that they had brought into the church. And so he asked them and instructed them that they should repent. They should repent and they should turn back to him because it was the doctrine that was going to destroy the church. The morality then, or the morals of a church will be changed. What we held to be true, holy, righteous, those things that we held up and how our believers to live, then they'll go. In other words, things can happen in the church. Sometimes there's no difference between the church and what the world do. How the world live and what the world do and what the world's standards are and what their entertainment is is exactly the same as what we are now seeing in many churches. And it's a tragedy. It's all across. It's every denomination. It's not just one isolated area. There's been these filthy dreamers that have infiltrated the church of Jesus Christ. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18. This is what he says. He says, flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. 1 Corinthians 6 and 19. Then he says this, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's that our bodies belong to him. We've been redeemed. And these are the very temples of the Holy Ghost that we have a responsibility to live and to glorify the Lord. In 1 Peter 2 and 11, he says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Paul writing to Timothy, saying to Timothy, Flee youthful lusts, follow righteousness, charity, peace, uh, with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Flee. Flee sin. Run from sin. Leave sin. Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. It belongs to God. And in our bodies, we are to glorify the Lord through our bodies. But as grace is distorted, we find out some things happen. Some things that we can identify. Some things that we can start to identify or judge righteously of what will take place. This is what he says. He says, Likewise, these filthy dreamers, verse 8, they defile the flesh. They morally, that simply means they morally contaminate the body. Things that we would never have seen or witnessed or approved or endorsed or preached or taught that should never happen within the church of Jesus Christ will happen very easily and very freely because their purpose is to contaminate the body 
the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. There'll be a moral contamination. That means the, the standard, not that we're anything of ourselves, but the standard to live a holy life and a pleasing life. How many people believe that the Lord is holy? He's a holy God. But that, that standard that we were taught as a generation above us, and I know today that there's this mindset that we want to throw everything out of that generation. We want to discard the walk that they had, the old saints lived. Well, what we want to do is to get rid of all of that because we have some new great revelation of grace. I want to tell you, we don't. We don't. The Scripture is very clear. So these men will creep in and there'll be a moral decay within the church of Jesus Christ. Friends, that is what's happening all around us. There's a moral decay within the church. We know what's going to happen in the world. Men will wax worse and worse. They're dead in their sin. They're lost. That's how they'll live. They need the grace of God to save them. That's what we were, but for the grace of God. But then the church begins to implode as these false teachers and doctrines begin to slip in to the church of Jesus Christ. You'll see a moral decline within the church. The second thing then he says there in that verse 8, they'll despise dominion. What happens in the grace that is taught by these men is that there's a rejection of all authority. There's no longer authority. We don't have to come under authority. We don't live under authority. We don't have to be subject to anyone or anything. There is no authority in my life because I am under the grace of God and I can do and live whatever way I please. I have no responsibility. I want to tell you, friends, that is a distortion of everything of the Scripture. And yet it's rampant everywhere. You find it everywhere that you go and you find so many people not in fellowship, not under anything, not in anything, not subject to anything because they're under the grace of God. And that's what they'll tell you. They'll willingly explain to you that this is where they are. I don't have to belong. I don't have to be in. I don't have to be planted. I don't have to be under any spiritual authority or subject to anybody because I'm under the grace of God. It's the grace of God. I want to tell you that's a distortion of the grace of God. And that's rampant in the church today. They reject authority. They set aside all authority. But this is what Peter says. In 1 Peter 5 and 5, this is what the Scriptures say. This is what Peter says. He says, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. There's a submission to that which is the older. Do you know one of the most strangest things that I find in a lot of churches and what I hear in a lot of churches, they want to do away with the older generation. It's a remarkable thing that in the church today, and particularly the Pentecostal church, or in the broader sense of that, the charismatic church, they want to do away with everything of the old. We don't want the old. We want to change everything. We don't want to, have any, we don't want to accommodate the old. We don't want to have them in our ranks. We don't want to sing their songs, them old-fashioned things, all the rest of it. Let's get all that out. I want to tell you what Peter said. We're to submit ourselves to the elder. Now, if you reject authority and you get rid of all the old, then you're not accountable for anything. You have no example. Those who have lived the life and walked and walked with God and set an example. We are thankful for the older ones in our fellowship who have set a great example. Some 
wonderful men and women of God who walk with God, who have the wisdom of God, who have lived the life. They've lived the life. You can't just do that from a textbook. You have to live the life. And the church, the modern church is saying, well, we don't want the old. We don't want those old generations. They don't fit into what we're doing. Friends, it's a tragedy. And do you know what that is? That's men and doctrines that have crept in by stealth and they've distorted the grace of God and they've rejected authority. We won't have, and it's the spirit of the age, we'll not have anybody rule over us. And here it says there, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, then it says, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility for God resists the proud. And then those that claim to have the grace of God, the grace of God is given to the humble that those that can submit. And here we see the distortion. They'll despise authority. They'll despise any sense of structure, any sense of God's order. God has an order. God has a way. God has a structure. God has established it. But they'll despise that. And they'll set that aside. And they'll say it's all under grace. I want to tell you it's not the grace of God. It's not God's grace. It says there when we remove... In 2 Peter 2 and 10, he writes, when we remove this authority and all of that order in the, in the name of freedom and grace, Peter says, 2 Peter 2 and 10, but they walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. They despise government, and that's that word authority again. Presumptuous are they, self-willed, and they're not afraid to speak evil of dignities. And again, that's, uh, what Jude mentions in verse 8. They defile the flesh, they despise dominion, and then he said, they speak evil of dignities. There's an irreverence comes in for the things which are holy, for the things which are in the glory, the things that we should reverence and have a reverence for. There's an irreverence comes to the things of God. There's an irreverence in the house of God. There's a casualness that comes there's a casualness that begins to creep in, and that's an irreverence to a holy God. And friends, I want to tell you that's come, and it's creeping in, and it's not the devil that's going to destroy that church. It's going to be false teaching, false teachers, and a distortion of the doctrine of grace. Speak evil. Then he, he references something that is quite a unique verse, verse 9. It's quite a unique thing because there is no uh, particular record of this happening in the Old Testament. That's not to say, of course, that it didn't happen. We know it happened. But it's, there's no specific record of Michael the archangel contending with the devil. This is the first time that we uh, come across this particular scripture. Here we have Michael the archangel, and this is what he's, he's, he's bringing the archangels being the high-ranking angels, the archangels, Here's a high-ranking angel that is, it seems to be from what we can see, that when Moses died, we know that he was buried uh, in Nebo. And the Lord, it says, buried him in, in Deuteronomy 34. We're told that Moses, the servant of the Lord, died in the land of Moab. 
according to the word of the Lord. And then it says these words, that he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, that the Lord buried Moses in the land of Moab, just as he's seen the promised land with his own eyes. And then it seems that the reference here from Judah is that Michael the archangel, now I would believe that Michael the archangel was the angel that was dispatched from glory to take the body of Moses and to bury him in the land of Moab. And while he's burying him, it is the devil, this is what it says, that the devil then was bringing a railing accusation against a contending even over the body of Moses. And here we have Michael the archangel. We have the devil himself. And it brings out this, this amazing scene, obviously, of, of the archangel Michael. Obviously, we believe that Lucifer was an archangel. And he now is opposing or contending the body of Moses. It's a profound thing. Maybe there's more revelation that some people have on it. That's what I see that's happening here. And this is in reference to, of course, those that speak evil of dignities or become irreverent about the things of God. That at that point, even Michael the archangel, he said, the Lord rebuke you. There is an irreverence comes. There's, there is in our conversation about the things which are holy, the things which are, are very important, the things that we should have a, a reverence towards and not a casualness. And even at that point, Michael didn't say, I rebuke you, just like in Zechariah with the high priest in Joshua. Even at that point, he spoke to the devil and said, the Lord rebuke you. There was a reverence in the order and the function and the workings out of the things of God, the Lord rebuke you. And there's such a casualness even in conversation when we talk about the things which are precious, the things which are in the principalities and powers, the things we need to be so careful that we're not flippant in any way, but that we come reverently and we come in the name of the Lord and we come with a holy fear. You know, that fear, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so he's referring to a people that are quite casual about their conversation about the things of God. There's no real reverence. This is what Jude says, a strong language, verse 10. He says, but these people, these men, these women, they speak evil of those things which they don't know. They know not. Then he goes on to say, and this is what he says, but what they know, they know naturally. It's a natural mind. In other words, in the conversation concerning these things, people assume a natural mind. And that mind is natural, is enmity against God. And it's convincing arguments, and it's new ideas, and it's great thoughts. But this is what Jude says. This is what they know naturally. He says they are brute. It's quite strong language, isn't it? He says they're brute beasts. In those things, they corrupt themselves. They have the instinct of an animal. It's all natural. It's not the anointing. These filthy dreamers. I'm so thankful for the grace of God. Are you? It's amazing, the grace of God. But it's being distorted. It's being distorted, and it's creeping into the church. And that's what's destroying the church. Not the devil. 
because the devil can't. Jesus says he'll build this church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But these false teachers, friends, we need to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. We need to be aware because the manifestation or the fruit of this will be the immorality that will be rampant in the church. Could I tell you, friends, it's everywhere. It's rampant. And it's all under the guise of grace. It's not as a distortion of the grace of God. Lord, help us to stay on the narrow path, to walk that path pleasing to the Lord. Keep us close to the Lord. Keep us humble before the Lord. Lord, encourage each one of us to live for him in these days. Let's pray together.